In episode 85, the American political theatre continues, but the result is inevitable. We'll do some fun reminiscing about tape recorders you've owned in the past and what you use them for. There's plenty of Apple feedback in the mix. Bonnie's here with her bulletin and a whole lot more. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Welcome, as always, it's a pleasure to have you with us, whether you're listening on the podcast or live on Mushroom FM. And if you are listening on the podcast and haven't checked out Mushroom FM, I hope you will. Lots of entertainment there with our four decades of magic mushroom memories and great personalities playing the music. But we start with how we've started for the last two or three weeks. It is now two weeks since the election results were called by the networks, since the evidence was in, since it was inevitable that Joe Biden had won the election. And now two weeks on, that lead has solidified with over six million votes more for President-elect Biden than for the outgoing President Donald Trump. That 306 votes in the Electoral College is secure. And the Trump campaign or its allies have taken 35 cases relating to the election to various courts. Two of a minor technical nature have been successful and 33 have been thrown out and often laughed out of court. Not one certification of a result has been held up in a court case so far. Not a single court case has found any evidence for claims that there has been widespread voter fraud. The courts have spoken. The overall soundness of the process is confirmed. And someone needs at this point to say that the madness has to stop and say to Trump, loser, put your big boy pants on, and deal with it, and for once, do the right thing. The other day, Rudy Giuliani, in one of the most dangerous hours in a bit of TV in America, 
made all sorts of baseless and unfounded allegations, one of which was that there were more votes cast in certain counties in Michigan than people existed. And then when you go and you look at the affidavits that were filed, you find that they are talking about counties in Minnesota. It's as basic as that. They are confusing things like Michigan with Minnesota. Well, they both do start with M, after all. Now, it's no surprise, of course, Donald Trump and the facts have been estranged for as long as he's been in politics and a lot longer besides. And he's also shown authoritarian tendencies, sympathizing more with dictators than America's traditional allies. Let's not mince words. What he is attempting here is a coup. He is trying to steal the election, subvert the clearly expressed will of the American people. And it does seem like the legal system is holding. Even Trump-appointed judges understand the importance of following legal process. We have to hope that that continues to be the case. You cannot simply make stuff up without evidence. I understand the strategy that the Biden campaign is playing. They're trying to be above the fray. In general, I suppose that makes sense. They seem to be saying that this has to play itself out. The Electoral College will certify the results sooner rather than later, and then the GSA will have to release the funds for the Biden transition. But America is living in dangerous times. Now over 250,000 people have died from COVID. And it's almost as if that heartbreaking fact is being subsumed by the political theatre that Donald Trump and his henchmen are perpetuating on the American people. It's a tragic thing. And then yesterday, we saw 190,000 new COVID cases in one day alone in the United States. They're heading close to that 200K number. I am an optimist by nature. I've said that on this show before, and it is true. I do believe that this Trump era is passing. The legal system is holding up. And I just hope that the institutions are not so irreparably damaged that it's going to be impossible for America to recover its credibility. The world is watching absolutely agog as somebody seeks to overturn the result of a democratic election. It is not surprising, but nonetheless extraordinary. A word that has been overused in a negative sense over the last five years or so. We do have listener comments coming in. We start with Carol Ashland this week, who says, I heard a little article on the radio that made sense of the Electoral College for me. The original people who did the Constitution created the Electoral College to fix things so that the states with the greatest number of people didn't always get their way. Of course, it's been misused since then by Trump, among others. I, among others, think that the Electoral College should be done away with. But Petra disagrees. She says, I'll try to explain how this is intended to work. Everyone's vote counts in their state. The majority of the state's population chooses who their state votes for. If the Electoral College goes away, smaller states will not have any influence. Our country is called the United States of America, not the Union of America. States have some autonomy. Thanks, Petra. And yes, indeed, that's the argument, isn't it? And there's a tension between those who have a more traditional view, a conservative view of states' rights versus those who favor a more national kind of approach. And of course, you get debates about this whenever there's a Supreme Court justice up for confirmation. 
And of course, where you live in Colorado, they have now signed on to this idea of abolishing the Electoral College by using the Electoral College itself, which I talked about in last week's episode. I think the danger for America is that there have actually been some good ideas since the 1700s, and the world has changed a lot since the 1700s. Mass communication, the smallness of the world because of uh, transport options, flying, etc., really has changed the game a lot. So if you abolished the Electoral College, you still wouldn't be getting rid of states' rights. They would be manifested in other institutions, such as the House and the Senate. It just would be that the presidency would be a nationally elected position, which is what those people who are advocating for this abolition of the Electoral College, which has got 196 electoral votes, are going for. But of course, there are valid arguments on both sides. Absolutely, there are. Uh, When you think about voting systems, I've actually done a lot of this work in my life, whether it be for constitutions of organizations I've been involved with or thinking about the wider question politically. There are various ways of determining what is the truly democratic option. There's no one right way with this. And depending on your leaning and your perspective, you'll come out with a different conclusion. David writes, I am listening to you reading an email about Trump. Refreshing to have a non-politician in office for four years. Really? That circus? Yes, redo the entire system. It is very broken. I hope it stays peaceful too. The right fusses about compulsory health care, but never offers a workable alternative. Health care should not be dependent on your ability to pay. I have heard the NHS is not that good anymore, suffering from budget cuts and understaffed, especially during the coronavirus. I thought Japan or Taiwan or Switzerland had better systems. Trump is about cruelty, mockery, selfishness, belittling people and calling it good business sense. He seems to be broke, a liar, a drifter, not a nice person, vindictive. America has lost so much face in the world. China and Russia must be killing themselves laughing. I'm an American and I don't understand the psyche either. I'd never take a bullet for any president. They are often too flawed. Michael Bullis is writing in and he says many of my friends who support Trump tell me all the good things he's done for the economy, setting aside their willingness to really understand how little presidents have to do with the economy. My objections to Trump are that he attacks our system of democracy without facts, devastating the things that make our system possible. When you attack without facts, the security of the e-voting process you undermine one of the underpinnings of our democracy. Although I don't have much respect for many in the press, describing them as the enemy of the people undermines a fundamental of our democracy. When you support making it difficult for people to vote who don't agree with you, you are undermining our democracy. What I'm trying to say is that my vote for any particular candidate is only transactional up to a point. If a candidate delivers a good economy or better health care, but attacks the very system that allows him or her to get elected, they will not receive my vote. And Dave Baker writes, Hey man. Hey man. I really appreciate your perspective on the US elections. 
I wanted to respond specifically to the sentiments of the Trump supporter whose letter you read on the show. That was Christopher Wright's email of a couple of weeks ago because we had another contribution from Dave that we read last week. In 2016, Trump turned my head. I could at that time be best described as a libertarian slash independent. The Tea Party in 2010 had started moving me away from the libertarian slash Ayn Rand philosophy. Trump's candidacy came at a time when there were a lot of questions about censorship, free speech, and who or what body decided these things. I believe now that a good bit of this was contrived. Bear in mind that those of us middle-aged people had lived through the 70s and 80s when we had events like Tipper Gore suing the dead Kennedys over an album cover, Judas Priest being taken to court, parents burning records, Even the lament about child abuse done by Pat Benatar, Hell is for Children, was derided for supporting satanic abuse of kids by some. So, for my adult life, I have always been skittish of censorship in any form. That included the censorship of criticism against the Iraq war. Now, cue the theme music, in comes these videos of actual kids calling for censorship. And said videos get shared around bars and pubs. People can't believe what's happening. They start saying things like, it's not okay to be white on college campuses anymore. Even if you never completely believe any one specific point brought up, it was the onslaught. Learn later that some of these videos were in fact contrived. Some of the alleged left-wing agitators were plants, and it's okay to be white is some sort of code phrase for new Nazis. Then a college campus bans what is essentially a gang symbol, the aforementioned phrase, and as so often happens, only half the story gets out. Which leads to the similar trope now about cancel culture and political correctness. Truth be told, mob mentality is a scary thing, be it at a Trump rally or a college Twitter fest. And there are times when things go too far. Few would argue that. But is it really political correctness and cancel culture when sensibilities change? I personally am very much in favour of separating the art from the artist, not scrubbing previous works from history because of its creator. In fact, typically it's the religious element of American society who does such scrubbing. But... And there's always a bat, isn't there? I was listening to some old Eddie Murphy from the 1980s. Delirious, I believe it was. The stuff our conservative elders would have frowned upon if they caught us listening to it as kids. But I couldn't listen to the whole thing anymore. I wasn't offended, triggered, or any other words the right throw around. I have a bisexual daughter who I'm very proud to say just finished her degree after many years and setbacks most of us haven't had. You remember the jokes on that album, which were levelled at gay people. It was constant, homophobic, and I know I personally thought that stuff was really fun then. I'm not offended by Eddie Murphy, it was us who were laughing at it. By putting that album down, I wasn't making a politically correct statement, or, as my daughter calls it, being an ally, Maybe I was doing a bit of that last part, but I was by myself. I put that album down for good 
because I find that whole aspect of our history quite sad, and yes, rather shameful. As a blind man, I knew well enough what it was to be mistreated, be told I was too slow, not keeping up, all the things we know. Why then did I not extend the same empathy to LGBTQ+, and later Muslim people? On a personal level, this troubles me. All this to say, no school made me put that album down, nobody cancelled that album, nobody got in my face and chewed me out over listening to it. I had simply changed, gradually, imperceptibly, over time. And then, when our daughter came out to us a few years ago, I had to fish or cut bait, man. You know, shit or get off the pot. Quit fence-sitting on the whole LGBTQ plus stuff. Other people are doing the very same thing with different groups of people. This is not your government coming in and telling us what to do. This isn't people becoming mamby-pamby or sheeple. As to what the platforms put up with, that's a branding issue. Professional broadcasters know it. We professional musicians know it. What's going on now is bottom-up, not top-down. This is not the same as going into the record store for the latest Judas Priest album only to find they can't stock it because some moms got upset. To your Trump supporter listeners, I understand the feeling that nobody ever really hears us. You work all day, pay a lot in taxes, wonder how your kid is going to get through college, and so much more. But please understand, those who wish to use your current dissatisfaction are not really listening to you either. A few buzzwords, a few pat answers, and of course, the manufactured outrage. You're to be commended for looking behind the curtain. I would challenge anyone to go ahead and look behind the curtain of what you've been told is going on. Sorry if this came off either preachy or ramble or both. I really didn't intend to do that. Please don't take it as me being high and mighty. If anything, I've been living the stereotyped midlife crisis, dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it, for the past few years. Perhaps part of how this may come off as disjointed is I've been starting to really get my footing again in recent months. I just think it's important to differentiate government and institutional overreach from the personal and societal changes that happen. Dave, that is one hell of an email. You've been on quite a journey, and I congratulate your daughter first and foremost on her graduation and overcoming the trials that she's had to overcome. And I congratulate you on being such a good dad. You know, it really is so sad when I hear of kids who come out to their parents. It's a very difficult decision for some, depending on the family environment, only to be rejected. Sometimes that's what the kids expect. Sometimes they're hopeful. Sometimes they know that they're going to be accepted and it's going to be okay. It sounds like as a dad, you're doing the best you can for your daughter, and that's really all we can do, isn't it? You raise a point that is worth exploring. It has always mystified me why we have blind people who presumably have faced discrimination at various times in our lives, 
who are so intolerant of others? Why do we have blind homophobes? Why do we have blind racists? And I'm not saying that all blind people are angelic. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if we've faced people judging us not by the content of our character or by our abilities, but simply by virtue of the fact that we don't have working eyeballs, we know how it feels, right? We know the injustice of it, the unfairness of it. So why is it that we do have people in our community who can't extend empathy for other forms of discrimination? Mosin at Large Podcast! Hello, Jonathan, and all your listeners. This is Andy Repture speaking, and I'd like to tell you a story about my first tape recorder. This might have been 1962 or so, so I was 10 years old, and my mother had gotten my father a little portable tape recorder for Christmas. This thing was uh, tiny and it used three-inch reels and it might have cost her $30, which was a lot of money back then. And I don't think my father ever got to use it for anything because my brother, who was two years older than me, and I absconded with this recorder and they never saw it again. So we would record ourselves singing and playing songs on the piano and doing as much silly uh, kid stuff as you can do with a tape recorder. But the piece I remember most was a fake radio commercial. Now, at the time, we were encouraged forcibly to put our money in a savings account. So our Christmas money wasn't even usable by us. We had to put it away, or at least most of it. And so our humor ran toward the satirical uh, side, and we decided to make this commercial for the local bank. So I crawled underneath the covers to get rid of the reverb noise and took the mic in there with me and voiced in my little tiny 10-year-old kid voice this commercial. Now, before I play it for you, I should tell you three things about this recorder. One, it had a permanent erase head. Two, it had no drive capstan. Three, it had a real tinny, lousy-sounding crystal microphone. So, the audio had a lot of noise in the background, and it was all warbly, and it was extremely nasal-sounding. So our little commercial probably sounded something like this. Hi, kids. This is John Dingbat, president and benevolent overlord of the Deadwood National Bank. Did you know your money is extremely safe with us? You can trust us because when your money goes into my pocket, it never comes out. If you're lucky, you might be able to pry it loose when you're 18 years old. Just think. By then, you may have up to $300 to put toward your college education. 300 bucks? I could buy a great tape recorder with that kind of money. (laughs) This is a great topic, Andy. Thanks very much for raising it. I'm sure many of us have memories of tape recorders because so many blind people were into fooling around with tape recorders. The first tape recorder I remember, and I'm a bit younger than you, so it was in the 70s, and it was a cassette machine, and it actually belonged to my brother. And I think he bought this tape deck in 1972, if I'm remembering correctly. 
and it was made by Thorn. And I remember it so clearly. I don't remember the model number, but I do remember that it was a sort of a flat cassette deck. The controls were in front of you and they were a series of knobs. It had a radio tuner in it. So you had the dial on the right hand side to adjust the stations. We didn't have FM in the 1970s. So AM only, no FM switch. And then you had a volume control and then you had a tone control and they were the knobs. And then going further down onto the front, you had two switches, one that flipped you between radio and cassette, and the other was a sound switch, because the really idiosyncratic thing about this recorder was that it did not have an auto-level control when you recorded either off the microphone or off the radio. So the volume control, which adjusted the output of the speaker, also adjusted the input when you were recording so if you wanted to get a good level and i don't know whether there must have been some sort of visual meter on it you would have to turn the sound switch off so you didn't blast yourself when you turned up the volume enough to get a good input level there was no built-in microphone in this thorn cassette deck so on the left hand side you had a microphone jack an auxiliary jack oh and also one of those sort of remote control jacks Do you remember those microphones you could buy and they had two plugs, one plugged into the microphone socket and the other was a smaller one that plugged into the remote jack so that when you switched the microphone off with the sort of two position switch that was on the microphone that made quite a bit of a noise when you switched it, it would stop the recording and then you'd flip the switch up again to start recording. So you had the mic jack, the remote jack, you'd have a line in I think they called an auxiliary jack in those days. And then there was an earphone jack that you would plug your little earphone into. And then on the top of the machine, you loaded your cassette in there. And above that, what was really interesting was you had this little compartment. You'd lift up the compartment and you could store two cassettes in there to take around with you, two of them. And you'd store them with the tape side up. So that was the first tape deck that I got sort of access to. And then eventually I had all sorts of little recorders, like a Sanyo recorder that uh, was quite a lot smaller, had good battery life and had auto recording. And that little Sanyo had a built-in microphone. Wow, what a revolution. So I used to have these little handheld mics. They were dynamic mics that I would plug into that Thorn tape recorder, but inevitably I'd mistreat them and the plugs would go all faulty and things. But the built-in mic... That was cool because you could take it everywhere and record. No need to plug in a mic. I had this disastrous one called a Melody tape recorder. It was really cheap and the play mechanism kept breaking on it. People said I was too hard on it by rewinding and playing too much. Uh, Absolutely crazy stuff. I remember my Uncle Albie going away to Singapore where technology was so much cheaper then and it was organized that he would come back with a tape recorder for me. And in the 70s and perhaps early 80s, one of the things that was cool about getting a new tape recorder, if you were lucky enough to get a new one, was you'd get this demonstration tape, and they were probably about C10s, so five minutes on each side. And they would often come with this really sort of dinky music. (laughs) Some of it was quite good. We thought it was at the time anyway. I should check on YouTube to see if you can get those old, I remember there was a really good Hitachi portable cassette deck demonstration tape. The Sanyo one I got certainly had demonstration tapes. And then, of course, 
we went into the 1980s and we got the high-speed dubbing on the twin decks and the sound of them was uh, starting to get really quite good by then. And high-speed dubbing was the thing if you just wanted to copy someone's tape. I wasn't so much into that. I was still interested in uh, in doing the, the radio stuff. By that stage, I had myself a little FM transmitter. And I would broadcast uh, around the neighborhood with a radio station that I'd set up. And I found, by doing some careful selection in the store, I found one of those high-speed cassette decks, the, the twin deck things, that actually let you play from both decks at once. Not all of them let you do that. So by connecting this deck to the FM transmitter and by having a second, just cheapy portable cassette deck, what I would do is queue up the song I wanted to play on that portable deck that wasn't plugged into the transmitter. I'd just use rewind, fast forward. I don't think I had anything as sophisticated as the track search thing where you could push a button and it would detect the silence. I'd find the song I wanted and then I'd put it in the second deck, the one that wasn't playing a song, and the moment the song started to fade out, I would press play on the second deck. So it sounded very professional. I actually got a crossfade and this cassette deck also had a microphone at the front complete with really ridiculous sounding springy reverb for karaoke. But it did mean that by connecting this cassette deck and doing all that jiggery pokery, I was able to do a pretty cool sounding radio station for the neighborhood and in the early days for my school. And that eventually got us to the point where I applied for a short term license from the Broadcasting Tribunal, and we set up with proper radio equipment to broadcast around the greater Auckland area. And you can hear that story on in the arena, of course. And eventually, I did get to really nice cassette decks, like the Denon one I had with DBX, and I think it had three heads and things like that. And actually, over here in the studio, if I just reach for it, we've got... Where is it? There it is. Put the cassette... In the machine, close the door. It's a Harman Kardon cassette deck, just in case I need to do any dubbing. And it's got uh, three heads, and it's a, a really nice cassette deck. But the other thing, too, was what we did with these tape recorders. And you're right, so many of us did pretend radio stations and things like that. I remember doing all sorts of tricks with later cassette decks, including a Panasonic one which actually sounded so nice compared to the Thorn one. It had a big speaker on the front. The audio quality had improved substantially. And I worked out that if you held the record button half the way in, you would record, but you wouldn't activate the erase head across the tape. And that was how I would do little multi-track recordings, doing multiple harmony and stuff like that. But we would record, all my friends and I, we'd record tapes to each other. We'd go and do these little radio shows, and I guess you would call them the precursor of podcasts in some ways. We would just hand them around to each other. They'd sort of do the circuit. You could have the tape one night, and then it got passed on to someone else. And I kind of wish I had some of those old tapes now that some of my friends did, particularly those who have died subsequently. It would certainly bring back a lot of great memories, and I'm sure that the ones that I did would make me absolutely cringe. Sadly, I have far too much <laughs> material from when I was young. But we would do all sorts of cool things with the tape recorder. 
It was a lot of fun, as well as listen to music and that kind of thing. So what a great conversation to get into. Tell us about your first tape recorder or what you would do with your tape recorder. Bonnie may well chime in on this because she tells me that she and her friend Amy used to do all sorts of tapes when they were little. And gosh, I'd give anything to hear one of those and hear what she was like as a child. Dan Tevald is commenting on the subject and says, I'm glad you asked about tape recorders. I've had several and eventually stopped using them. My first recorder was a standard off-the-shelf version with a condenser microphone. I'd never seen a condenser microphone before, so it was novel. I don't know what happened to it. Then I got the fancy APH model with the tone indexing button, speech compression, and the ability to record four-track cassettes. It was a gift from a woman whose blind husband had died. I loved it until one fine day in graduate school it came apart while I was walking across the campus. Then I got a series of small recorders of various types. They either disappeared or I gave them away. My final tape recorder, which I still have, is the APH Handy Cassette Recorder. I like it, but I never use it anymore. I never understood why it had such small legs. It could easily tip over. Once the Victor Stream came on the market, I didn't see a need for a cassette recorder. On a slightly unrelated note, I remember the NLS players came with a cassette with instructions. One track was in English and the other in Spanish. I played the Spanish track to a Spanish-speaking friend, and he really laughed at the formal Castilian Spanish. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, the cool thing about those APH recorders was the little... How would you describe it? I don't know what you would call it. This this little little pointy thing in the middle of the cassette recorder, kind of like that you could feel the tape spinning round. And of course, as younger people, it would be kind of challenging to try and stop the thing from spinning round while you were playing a tape. And I can't imagine how many young mischievous blind people must have tried to stop that thing from turning probably doing untold damage to their cassettes in the process. The big APH recorder that I remember from the 1980s was very cool in that when you switched to slow speed, you could hear it applying some equalization to try and compensate for the fact that the slower the speed, the lower the fidelity. Larry probably had a lot to do with that. So you'd hear a little bit of extra hiss, but it would be nice and crisp, as crisp as you could get with those slower speeds. The APH machines that I've seen, and I may well not have seen them all, of course, only had a variable speed control that was pretty traditional. You would speed it up and both the pitch and the speed would increase. But I do remember in the 1970s, which is extraordinary, really, we had a device at our school for the blind, and I'm pretty sure that it was made by GE, by General Electric. And I seem to recall that We called it a compressed speech machine. I don't know if that's really its name or not, but the amazing thing about this, given that we are talking the 1970s, was that if you put speech in there, like a a recording of, of someone narrating a book or something like that, you could increase the reading speed without increasing the pitch. Now, in this day and age, people are doing that all the time with podcasts and audiobook players and things, so no big deal, it's all digital. How they were pulling off that in the 1970s 
in a very analog world. I have no idea, but it did work. It was a pretty cool machine, and I wonder if anyone else remembers it. Now, someone who may remember that because she went to school with me is Kylie Maloney, and she says, Hey, Jonathan, growing up as a boarder at Homai, as I did, tape recorders were our most ubiquitous toy. My first one was a Sanyo, flat, rectangular, with controls, cassette door and speaker on top, going from front to back. However, we also had classroom access to a large open reel machine on which we received the old broadcast to schools radio dramas from people like the great Inia Tewiata. While I don't have anything now from my own recordings, I was given a number of recordings by our former schoolmate Paula Waby when I put together a tribute to the late great Jan Rutherford. They were probably recorded in 1975 or 1976 in the Playhouse at the Junior Girls Hostel. Thanks, Kylie. I remember that real machine. Wasn't it called a Faragraph machine? I think that's what they called it. It was a big kahuna, wasn't it? And thank you so much for enclosing the recording for me to listen to personally. I look forward to hearing some voices that I haven't heard for a long time. Well, Jonathan, now you've done it, haven't you, mentioning tape recorders? When I was young, just leaving school, I think, we got our first tape recorder in the family. It was a reel-to-reel with a BSR deck, it had two valves inside, both hanging upside down inside. One of them was basically the record amp, the other was the sound output bit. But uh, it also operated, that is the sound output bit, as the erase oscillator and bias oscillator. So the whole of the two valves were actually multitasked, if you like. With one snag with this, however... And that was that uh, because it was mains and it was valve, a lot of high voltages were around. And when you moved the lever for the record, the wafer switch underneath sparked. And over a period of time, it sparked enough to carbonise the switch. So you'd be busy playing your recording that you'd made, or even a pre-recorded one, and suddenly it would drop into erase and delete everything on the tape and until you got to it and stopped it. <laughs> In the end, my father, who was obviously an electrical engineer, got fed up with this. And we, he, he got a, a new switch, a much better quality wafer switch, which, of course, didn't fit the pre-CB. So he had to suspend it on bits of wire <laughs> so that the switch would still operate it. But it fixed it totally. And I actually had two albums on tape. One was Revolver by the Beatles, and the other was Scylla Sings a Rainbow. Both on Parlophone, of course, as you will know. So that dates it, doesn't it, to 1966 or so? And um, it's interesting because EMI used to put out recordings on smaller tapes. They weren't five and a quarter inch or whatever they are, reels, like the tape recorder could take the maximum, they were slightly smaller than that. And, of course, they used Emmy tape. They were half-track recordings, so there was no stereo. You just turned them over at the end of side one and played the other side, so to speak. And uh, you had to lace them up just like every other tape, you know, with the leader through the tape slot. That BSR deck lasted for years and years and years. I have to say, the recording level on it was a magic eye. That's what they used to call them. 
basically a valve on its side almost with a phosphor screen on the side with two green pieces that lit up and what there was were electrodes inside that the higher the voltage on the electrodes the more it pulled the yellow the green bit towards the middle so the two met in the middle and when they overlapped in the middle you were overloading the recording so it was really a peak reading meter before its day really it made some quite nice recordings i have to say it had a an ornery sort of phono input and a microphone input the microphones were all crystal no magnetic ones they were actually crystal sort of on on the end of like a little arm with a silver silver foil on the end of them <laughs> and they sounded remarkably good considering but they were high impedance of course so that meant you could pick up quite a lot of hum so i had that one for quite some time three and three quarter inches per second was the only speed it could do but it was made basically to a to a a budget. I mean, we could afford it. We had to buy it on high purchase. <laughs> anyway, the next tape recorder I got was a Van der Molen. Interestingly, he had one valve in it. But it was a vertical deck and it had three speeds on it. It was only mono again, but it was quarter track. So that means you could get four times as much on the recording. And of course, I had great fun stringing tape between the two of them. I soon discovered that one of them would go a bit faster than the other. So I had to make sure that the faster one was the one behind the slower one. Otherwise, you've got an ever-lengthening ever loop between the two because you could operate the vertical one horizontally so that it didn't have to go through 90 degrees. Probably abuse of tape, I would imagine, doing that. There was a portable tape recorder we had, but it was of no use whatsoever because it was a dictaphone type and it was not constant speed. It didn't have a capstan. And that meant, of course, that as you recorded, you recorded at a slower speed at the beginning than you did in the at the end uh, on the recording. So if you broke the tape and you tried to splice it back together again, all the speeds were wrong. And it used a DC erase as well, when in fact it used a magnet, which is what an awful lot of early cassette recorders did, except for the Philips ones from Grundig, of course. They still used a bias and, and erase oscillator, but I did have some early cassette recorders, very cheap and cheerful ones. But getting back on topic with reel-to-reels, I bought myself a Tanberg uh, deck, stereo deck, quarter-track deck, one of the ones with the joystick on, on the right-hand side. In fact, it was very similar controls to the old BSR one that I was mentioning earlier. I reckon they must have seen that. But nonetheless, it was very good. It didn't have three heads, but it did work very well. Although, when it did go wrong, I had several attempts at getting it fixed. And every time it got back here, its equalisation was out on one channel. The poor old chap running the hi-fi shop was tearing his hair out by the end of it. And then and actually, actually got in there and fixed it himself in the end. Because obviously, something hadn't been sealed properly and it was moving in in the transport from wherever it was being fixed in in you know to me really irritating but anyway we got away with it and it it, it ran for a long time that it had edge on edge on meters which were a bit difficult for me to see i have to say um other things that happened well i decided to upgrade it and i got myself a, a tanberg quarter track stereo three head machine and i also bought myself a sony tc three was it 366 or 336 or something another one with three speeds and it didn't have any pressure pads that one 
so you could just bring the tape underneath the heads and you didn't have to push it in a slot. I kept that for quite a time because it actually had a mixer built into it. But eventually I had to get rid of it because it was beginning to eat controls. I, I was running, you know, the controls were going crashy so quickly I had to get rid of it. But uh, generally speaking, it was a good recorder. It's just that they skimped a bit on some of the control knobs, really, the quality of them. So anyway, I, I flogged that on and I kept the Tanberg and that kept going for quite some time, all through the time that I was running cassette decks, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment. I then decided that I was going to lend it to a, a local radio station that was trying to start up to raise some money. That was a very bad thing to do because when I got it back here, it was knackered and they'd only had it about a month. <laughs> it just goes to show that other people don't look after your stuff like you do. So I learned a very valuable lesson that day. And although it was patched up, it's never been quite the same. I've still got it. It needs more remedial care now, but I can't find anybody that wants to service it because Tanberg no longer produce tape recorders. They're into video conferencing and all this kind of business now. They've got no chance of getting involved with tape recorders anymore or indeed hi-fi because they used to have one of their hi-fi amplifiers, which was very good as well. Shame about that. Uh, I did have, I went through all the cassette decks thereafter. I'm just trying to remember ones I've had. Over the years, the very first one I had was an Akai GXC46D. Very nice recorder. It had chrome on it, but it wasn't very good on chrome. It was better on ferric. I then went out and bought myself a three-head deck from Tandy. A realistic, in fact. That lasted for many, many years. And that was a very, very good recorder, considering I only paid a couple of hundred quid for it in their sale. It was made by Hitachi with badged realistic and um, it was a very good recorder. You could you had Dolby level controls on it, which I actually eventually retrofitted to the Akiai so that I could um, adjust the Dolby level properly without having a twiddle pots inside the, inside the thing. So anyway, that worked quite well. And I made lots of recordings on that, but it had ordinary meters. And of course, as my eyesight was getting worse, I found it more and more difficult to see. So I, got, um, I got, then got myself a Sony TCD... And what was it? 158SD, which was a luggable portable machine, but it had whacking great meters on it. And it also had a, a peak LED on it that flashed. And I could still see that. And that made very nice recordings, but it was only a two-head deck. Another cassette deck I had during the times that I was playing with cassette decks was the Neil 103. That's Northeast Audio Limited, who was a company that took over Ferrograph, and I thought it would be a good deck. Well, it was, but it ate tape heads. Honestly, you could get through a tape head in a year. I don't know what they were using. I think they must have been made out of plasticine or something. It's a very good sound, but the deck was very over over-engineered. It was the woolen sack deck, which I'm sure you're aware of, because it's a professional deck. Oversized capstan and all that stuff, and a whacking great flywheel inside, and it made a lot of noise. We had to put it actually on a typewriter mat to allow us to hear it. And I kept that for quite a while, and that had a mixer on it as well, but it had dual concentric knobs, which I never really liked. In the end, it started to degrade, and the first thing that went wrong with it, it blew a, blew a, a 12 a regulator, which I changed, and then other things started to go wrong with it. You knew the writing was on the wall, boyo. Uh, and then one day I put it away for about two months. And when I brought it out again, the pressure roller had melted into a little puddle on the on the deck under the, where the pressure roller was. 
So whatever rubber they'd made it out of had obviously disintegrated in two months, presumably through not being used. Weird. Um, I then bought myself a DBX deck, which was very, very good. And um, I used that for many years to record off the radio all, all the concerts, and they make very good recordings in DBX. Much better than Dolby, because you're not at the mercy of the tape path so much because it's a linear compander not a logarithmic frequency dependent compander like Dolby is I'm sure that those of you who know what I mean know what I mean everybody else are probably scratching their head <laughs> anyway I did actually have another Technics which was a cheaper one but I didn't think much of it because the solenoids when they went over made such a racket you could hear it right outside the house so I decided to sell that one on but uh, the, certainly the DBX deck lasted a long while, and I'm on my third one now, because all the others, they, their motors died eventually. I also had, and still have in fact, got a number of them here. I've got the Technics, still a DBX deck. I've got a Sony dual deck, which can dub, and at high speed if you want. And I've got a Denon three-head deck, which works quite well. And I use those to transfer cassettes over onto digital. And that's a potted history of cassette decks, although I did have many portables in the, in the process. I had a, a Sanyo portable Walkman with recorder, which I used to record everywhere I went on holiday, including the Canary Islands and, and Guernsey and Jersey and Malta and all sorts of other places. I also had a Panasonic later on, which I did the same with, um, without a radio in it as well. I didn't have a Dolby recorder Walkman, because I never felt that the quality of it was very good. I did have one that played back in Dolby from Tandy, and that was very nice, but it was only for pre-recorded and homemade tapes. Well, you are the tape recorder geek, Brian. A couple of things to respond to there. Yes, the DBX cassette decks were amazing. You record in DBX and played them back, obviously, on a DBX-capable machine. They were so clean lovely sound. I was surprised that Revox didn't come up in your list of reel-to-reel machines there. I remember working with a bunch of Revox equipment. It was really good stuff in various studios I've worked in. Hey Jonathan, it's Tanya Harrison here and I love this subject this weekend on tape recorders. Um, my first one I got when I was 12 and it was it was just a basic cassette deck, stereo speakers and radio um, the intriguing thing was that the microphone was in the handle. So if you were doing recordings, you didn't want to move around with the, with the machine because you'd end up hearing all these little clicking noises in the recording, which would be from the microphone um, being moved as you were moving the device. One of the things I love to do, and especially I had later on a couple of Philips tape decks that I really liked. I used to love recording not just normally but when I was recording certain sounds I would like to play around with the pause button so sort of press it halfway down, release it a little bit press it down again, a bit release it. So you get this really cool wowie kind of slow down effect and sometimes on one of my machines pressing the pause button that way would actually make the recording speed up. I got to the point with that machine where I knew how far, how far down to push it if I wanted a recording to slow down, speed up, 
slow down, speed up. And uh, to be honest, I've still got all those recordings and I must convert them to MP3s one of these days. And that begs the question. Um, I've seen one of these things online. It just looks like a Walkman and you can plug a USB stick into it and you can just press play and whatever comes out will go onto the memory stick. So I'm just wondering if anyone's ever used a device like that because to me it would save having to plug it into the computer and use any kind of audio recording software that way. Thanks, Hanya. Good question. That sounds like a pretty cool gadget. I've always done mine the hard way, connecting a pretty high-quality tape deck to my mixer and recording in something like Reaper and applying noise reduction and all that kind of malarkey. That sounds glorious, assuming it produces a good job. You and Brian talking about portable decks reminds me of the fact that I did buy a really lovely Sony Walkman. I bought this thing because I was going overseas. It was my first overseas trip, and Amanda and I were going on about a three-month escapade of the United States and mainly Britain, and I wanted to do a kind of a travel log, you know, take lots of audio in the same way that people take good quality video, So, or, or just even photos in those days. So I bought the Sony Walkman. I wish I remembered the model number. It had an AM-FM radio. It was really slim for its time. It was kind of a very sexy, slim machine, quite metallic in feel. It didn't have a built-in mic, but it came with a quite respectable stereo lapel mic. And I still have those recordings somewhere. I haven't digitized them on cassette. And it's cool because I, you know, we went through the Tower of London and various castles and all those sorts of touristy things. I really should go back and see what condition the tapes are in. And as for what Christopher Wright writes this week, he writes, Hi, Jonathan, I'm only 23 years old, so I'm probably one of the last generations that will have the misfortune to experience tapes. I remember using many boomboxes, a Walkman, or more likely a knockoff of a Walkman, a micro cassette player, and the NLS tape player. I think we still have cassettes floating around with old recordings of me singing and doing all kinds of other crazy things as a little kid. My parents have a bunch of VHS tapes that we're in the process of digitizing. I remember recording audiobooks playing from a cassette or CD using a micro tape player. The recordings aren't that good, but I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I've always loved recording and playing audio. My father tells me I used to play two or three tape players simultaneously, although I don't remember it at all. The earliest recordings I have access to at the moment were made on a computer when I was 14. I was playing Shades of Doom and several other audio games, and I sounded very different than I do now. I made several other recordings, but I didn't do the proper thing and ensure they were properly backed up. So they're probably lost forever. It's amazing to listen to myself from years ago. I think it's cool that even after I die, there will be many recordings of me singing and babbling about all sorts of things. I quit caring about tapes, CDs, and any other prior forms of storage when I was introduced to digital files. I can carry around hundreds of audiobooks and thousands of ebooks on a device that's about the size of my pinky nail. That's beyond amazing. I don't miss scratched CDs that skipped or tapes that would come unwound and or get destroyed by the machine. 
I would encourage anyone who still has precious recordings on tapes to digitize them ASAP. Tapes and CDs will eventually degrade, but digital information can last forever as long as it's backed up to new media before the old media fails. David Globe writes, Between Anna and I, we have gazillion memories about cassette recorders. Anna still is quite sad that those days are gone. She had tons of fun recording music and playing with recordings of people and many other things. I have a wonderful memory of when I combined the themes from two different Star Trek seasons. We could have tons of fun with recorders back in the day. Anna and I now play a little with voice memos. This is a terrific subject to get us all reminiscing. Hi there, Jonathan. Hope you and your family are all well. It's Douglas Howard from Ontario, Canada here. I owned many cassette players when I was a child growing up in the 80s. I even had a Fisher-Price mono cassette player that could record. And it was a built-in mic back then. And I, I loved it. I could record my voice, record things, and other people, which sometimes drove some of them nuts. <laughs> but um, I used to love recording my voice and music, and I actually have myself on tape from when I was about 12, um, because I'm really into broadcasting in television and radio, and I studied it in college a couple of years ago and graduated with honors. But even back then, I have myself on tape, and it's probably, I'd say, from about 1989 to maybe 1991. So I was between 10 and 12 in that range. And it's before my voice changed. So <laughs> um, what I'm hoping to do is buy one of those cassettes converters to mp3 and then clean it up and uh hope i can archive it on my hard drive or something i think that would be quite awesome and quite cool and you know i heard actually cassette players and cassette tapes are uh, coming back in style jonathan thanks so much for having me on the mose and a large podcast it's drew weber and what a cool podcast you got going on man i love all these topics you're talking about my first tape recorder Man, bringing me back about 30 years. It was probably about the time I was about three years old. My aunt and uncle got me the first birthday present I ever remember. I don't remember the brand. Of course, at that age, you don't care about that. But it was a boombox, had a single cassette deck, AM, FM radio. And you know, the crazy thing about memory is I can still remember it just like it's in my hand now. Probably the coolest thing about this unit is it had two microphones right above the speakers. These mics, believe it or not, were actually stereo mics. I didn't really know it at the time, didn't know what it was. But as I think back, I remember talking in one of the mics and then listening back on headphones because it was late, and it only came over my right ear. And then I talked in the other one, and it came over my left ear. Yeah, pretty cool. The boombox had very slim buttons, had a pause, stop, fast forward, rewind, play, and record. They were rectangular buttons. On the left upper side of it, it had a slider to turn the volume up and down. It was kind of a triangle plastic slide. 
On the right-hand side, another triangle plastic slide that switched from tape to FM and AM. And behind that, one of those big wheels that was kind of inverted, it was kind of on its side. And that, of course, did the FM AM tuning. On the left side of it, there was the standard, I'm going to call it like two-prong plug that you normally find in boom boxes. And then there was a headphone and then two mic jacks, left and right, respectively. What a cool memory. Thanks for bringing this back to my memory and attention and all those things. Can't wait to hear about other people's tape players, boom boxes, etc. So I guess the only question left is, Drew, what did you do with it? Well, I recorded the radio. I think that was the coolest thing for me with it, to be able to record the radio on a tape and then listen back. It took C batteries, and so I used to carry it around everywhere with me. And when it didn't have batteries in it, I like to record myself drumming on the boombox as the springs gave it a nice reverberation. I was a weird three-year-old. Hi, Jonathan. It's Allison Malloy in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I had, let's see, four favorite tape recorders growing up. I'm going to go through them as quickly as possible. One was, my first one was a Fisher-Price tape recorder that was very interesting. It had a built-in microphone. And it also had a separate stop and eject button. It was kind of neat. It was very plastic, but this eject button was near the cassette door. And I'm assuming it was some sort of latch that was built into some sort of mechanism that allowed you to open it. But it was, it was the only tape recorder I've seen that kind of had that. So I really liked that because it was, it was a toy, but for my four year old self, it was a great tape recorder. Uh, the second one was also a toy. It was a play school tape recorder, but it had a microphone that was connected by a cord that you could actually pick up and push the button and sing and talk into it and record and everything. So that was great fun. I loved that thing. I also had several years later an APH Panasonic Walkman. And this was really cool because first of all, it was a Walkman that played two and four track tapes. It had a great radio for its time and it AM and FM and there was even a stereo FM feature. And one of the things I really loved was not only could I record songs from off the radio, but I could also record myself. And if I was wearing headphones, I could monitor myself using the internal microphone. And then a couple of years after that, I got my first karaoke machine that was very cool. You could plug two microphones into it. I remember only having one, but that was really all I needed. I could sing into it. I could record myself singing. And it was my first tape recorder that had the dub feature. It had a, a high-speed dub and a regular speed. It was a double cassette player. So you could not only record yourself singing karaoke, but you could duplicate tapes. And that was really, really cool for its time. Ah, yes, the old Fisher-Price, eh? And I do remember that a friend of mine had a tape deck that his parents bought him from Toy World, which, as the name implies, was a toy place here in New Zealand. He got teased about that, which is a bit stupid of us, really, anyway. Thank you, Alison, and thanks to everybody who has contributed on this. We have a lot more on this subject So if we haven't played your contribution on it yet, 
We will next week. And if you haven't sent in a contribution yet, then feel free to get it into us. You can do that via the usual channels, the email address to which you can attach an audio clip, as many have done, or you can just write down your memories. Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can also call the listener line, and that number is 864-60-MOSIN. That number is in the United States, 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. I'm just uh, coming in here with some concerns about the COVID Tracer app and the latest case here in Auckland. This case is in an apartment block not too far from where I live. Now, don't, don't you think it would be, be would be as as someone who's been around the area should have the right to know where where they've been? And yes, I do use Swarm to check in. I, and that's the concern I have with these codes. If it becomes compulsory, it's going to be a lot of blind people who are going to be criminals. And I suggest that you email Chris Hipkins, every blind person in New Zealand should email Chris Hipkins with their concerns and tell them to implement the proper API. Wishing you all the best in terms of safety, David. It must be very scary to be so close to what was one of the few cases that we have in New Zealand that got out in the community. For those who aren't keeping up with this, New Zealand's COVID Tracer app works on barcodes. When you go to a premises, and it's now compulsory for all premises to have these barcodes, you are invited very strongly, strongly encouraged, urged, to scan those barcodes in New Zealand's contact tracing app. Now, as David is saying, the difficulty for blind people is how do you know where the barcodes are? And unfortunately, this really is not a very good model for blind people. In my view, it's one area where New Zealand has dropped the ball generally because the problem with a barcode-based solution is that it requires voluntary opt-in That's why some people are now suggesting, or the government needs to make scanning these barcodes compulsory. And that is a real concern because it's an accessibility nightmare. And I agree with you 100%, David. It's long past time the government embraced the Google and Apple API and turned that on. Just recently in a press conference from Chris Hipkins, who was New Zealand's minister for the COVID-19 response, He indicated that they are looking at this quite closely. They have been doing that for months, and they say they still have some privacy concerns. So like you, I would be profoundly concerned if this were made compulsory without uh, an appropriate accessibility fix. Gary Crow is writing in on a couple of hot topics. First, my first recorder was a 40-pound luggable reel-to-reel device that I used for school. Others used it to read what needed reading, and then I would use it to listen. It was pretty high-tech at the time. The big benefit was that the reading and the listening did not have to be at the same time, and I could listen more than once, although I seldom did. That was way too long ago for me to recall the details, but I do know that it helped me. I do note that I was intentionally not taught Braille with the explanation that it would prevent me from learning to read. What did I know? I was only six, with very thick glasses, a bright light, 
and holding the book a few inches away from my nose, I was able to learn that Spot runs fast, and was encouraged to see Spot run. I also learned that Spot is a dog. It was not long after that, when even the bright light and thick glasses weren't enough to learn more about the life and times of Spot. Unfortunately, the option to learn Braille, I hasten to say with glee with an uppercase B, had also passed. I did learn much later that needing readers in college turned out to be a really good way to meet girls, since guys weren't as interested in reading to blind guys. Is meeting interesting and occasionally interested young women worth missing out on Braille? I will leave that one to your experience and expertise. Well, Gary, I couldn't possibly comment. He continues, Second, I have an iPhone 12 mini. My big concern about getting it was how good the sound would be. Podcasts, books and such are excellent. Music is much better than I expected. Overall, it's quite acceptable. The size is the same as the SE, but with flat size and noticeably more responsive. Aruni Sharma is writing in from India. Hi, Jonathan. As always, your podcasts are very interesting and informative. Thank you very much. I am primarily an iPhone user, but I have an Android phone as my secondary device. I have been intrigued by the accessibility developments in Chrome OS, and so I brought a Chromebook as well. I would love to have your input or maybe of your listeners on the accessibility developments on these platforms. Thanks and regards. Great questions. I have not played with a Chromebook for a very long time, and I too would like to know how it's going. If you have a fairly modern Chromebook that's running the latest ChromeVox, that's their screen reader on Chrome OS, isn't it? How would you evaluate the accessibility? And of course, if you are rocking Android 11 on an Android device with that, how is that going as well? It is something that I mean to get back to at some point, but would love people's thoughts on this. Here's a subject that comes up every once in a while, and this time it comes from this email here. My name is B, and I'm from Northern NJ. That's New Jersey for those not familiar. I hope you and your family are doing well during this time. I'm really enjoying listening to your podcast. Thanks. This is my first time. Hooray! I have a question. What Bluetooth keyboard would you recommend that's small and that's not the Apple one? I already know about the Apple one. You want a small one by the sounds of it, B. So maybe something that's foldable or that you can just put in your pocket. So I get the use case. It's not something I've explored for a while because when I'm out and about, These days I use Braille screen input or I'm taking my Mantis with me. There are a lot of Bluetooth keyboard products. And in looking at your email, I typed into Google foldable Bluetooth keyboard and wow, a lot came up. So there are plenty of products you could investigate by typing a search into Google. I did have a foldable Bluetooth keyboard that was sort of on hinges and I'm trying to remember the manufacturer of that. I've also been on to sites like eBay in the past. And if you type in portable Bluetooth keyboard into eBay, you get quite a few very low cost Bluetooth keyboards. I remember having one that was just really tiny pocket sized. It wasn't foldable and the keys were quite cramped, but you could just keep that in a shirt pocket or pants pocket or whatever and take it out and type on it. So all sorts of options. But if somebody has specific recommendations, it sounds like what we're looking for here is something small. So smaller than the Apple one, for example, and Logitech do a wide range of keyboards, but that'd be about the same size as the Apple one. I think 
Logitech may now do a foldable Bluetooth keyboard as well. So I don't have the answer for you, B, but perhaps somebody else in the audience can tell us about some suitable options for you. Otherwise, get on the Google, type portable or foldable Bluetooth keyboard. You'll be amazed how much comes up. Plenty of feedback coming in on Apple things, as always, on Mosin at Large. And I should start by filling in a gap, correcting an omission. Because as people who've been listening to me for a while know, I like to find inventive names for every iPhone that I own. And, you know, I had something like Succeeds Like Success for my Success Plus, and, you know, on it goes. And uh, what have I had? I've had Max Not 99 for one of my Max phones. I think that was my iPhone 10 Max. My last phone, the 11 Pro Max, was called My Name is Maxi, which is a line from an old story called Maxi the Taxi Driver, which we used to hear all the time when we were kids. So my iPhone 12 Pro Max, for those who care, is called A Dozen Apples. Do you give your phones cool names? I know that Sarah Hillis told me that when she got her iPhone XR, she called it Lord Ten Arson, which I thought was just brilliant. So if you do spend some brain power on these things and you give your phones cool names, I'd be really interested to hear what you're naming them. Now, on a more serious note, yet again, we are dealing with a number of quality control issues at Apple. And I didn't mention on last week's show the debacle that was the Big Sur release. Unfortunately, that did not go well, and it even had an impact on people who weren't intending to install Big Sur. Now, Kelby Carlson has written in, and he says, an article I think you and the listeners should be aware of, I can't imagine the same thing isn't also true of iPhones. Now, I don't know whether this applies to iPhones or not. I just want to be clear about that. It is by a guy called Jeffrey Paul, and his creds are pretty good on these subjects. He's a security researcher, and the subject of the article is, your computer isn't yours. In part, it says, on modern versions of macOS, you simply can't power on your computer, launch a text editor or ebook reader, and write or read without a log of your activity being transmitted and stored. It turns out, that in the current version of Mac OS, the OS sends to Apple a hash, that's unique identifier in brackets, of each and every program you run when you run it. Lots of people didn't realize this because it's silent and invisible and it fails instantly and gracefully when you're offline. But today, and this was written I think on the 13th of November, the service got really slow and it didn't hit the fail fast code path and everyone's apps failed to open if they were connected to the internet. Because it does this using the internet, the server sees your IP, of course, and knows what time the request came in. An IP address allows for cause, city level, and ISP level geolocation, and allows for a table that has the following headings, date, time, computer, ISP, city, state, application hash, Apple or anyone else can, of course, calculate these hashes for common programs. Everything in the App Store, the Creative Cloud, Tor browsers, cracking or reverse engineering tools, whatever. This means that Apple knows when you're at home, when you're at work, 
what apps you open there and how often. They know when you open Premiere over at a friend's house on their Wi-Fi, and they know when you open Tor Browser in a hotel on a trip to another city. Who cares, I hear you asking? Well, it's not just Apple. This information doesn't stay with them. These OCPS requests are transmitted unencrypted. Everyone who can see the network can see these, including your ISP and anyone else who taps their cables. These requests can go to a third-party CDN, that's Content Distribution Network, run by another company, Akamai. Since October of 2012, Apple is a partner in the U.S. Intelligence Committee's PRISM spying program, which grants the U.S. and federal police unfettered access to this data without a warrant any time they ask for it. So that's a little bit of the article, and you can find out more about that by searching Your Computer Is Not Your Own. And the author is Jeffrey Paul, and he spells his Jeffrey J-E-F-F-R-E-Y Paul. This has created, as you can appreciate, quite the furor and the brouhaha. <laughs> I like both of these words. Apple has updated an article on Mac privacy to cover these issues. And in the interest of balance, I'll tell you what they say. They say, Mac OS has been designed to keep users and their data safe while respecting their privacy. Gatekeeper performs online checks to verify if an app contains known malware and whether the developer's signing certificate is revoked. We have never combined data from these checks with information about Apple users or their devices. We do not use data from these checks to learn what individual users are launching or running on their devices. Notarization checks if the app contains known malware using an encrypted connection that is resilient to server failures. These security checks have never included the user's Apple ID or the identity of their device. To further protect privacy, we have stopped logging IP addresses associated with developer ID certificate checks, and we will ensure that any collected IP addresses are removed from logs. That's Apple's response. Now, as you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, I am not a member of the Apple Can Do No Wrong fan club. And when they have erred, in my opinion, I'll just state my opinion for what that's worth, where I think Apple have done a fantastic job, as they do in many areas, I'll say that too. And on this one, I trust Apple more than pretty much any other technology company with my data. I think they have built their brand on strong privacy credentials, and they have now responded by removing IP addresses from these logs. They've made it clear they were never collecting Apple IDs. They were never associating you with the data. But obviously, inadvertently, an IP address association could be made if you looked hard enough. And so they've responded to, I guess, what they've interpreted as valid potential criticism and removed those IP addresses. If they're challenged with something that perhaps needs attention, they seem to respond pretty quickly, as they have in this case. In other news, there has been a lot of reaction to the issues confronting made-for-iPhone hearing aid wearers who have bought iPhone 12s, and that's anything iPhone 12, the Mini, the Pro, the Standard 12, and the Pro Max. As I've mentioned on this podcast, what happens is that the problem manifests itself in several ways. One of them is that audio cuts out in one ear quite a bit, and it can be different ears, 
And uh, most seriously, you get a very sudden burst of very loud static. Now, just after Mosin at Large was published last week, Apple did publish a knowledge base article, which basically said, we know about this. There was no apology, (laughs) just that we know about this and we intend fixing this in a future software update. Now, it is amazing to me that this got through Apple's quality control processes at all. But to give Apple credit, they responded very quickly to this one iOS 14.3 Beta 1 was only released on, I believe it was Friday my time in New Zealand. And then on Wednesday New Zealand time of this week, they pushed out iOS 14.3 Beta 2, which was very quick. And in there, they had some fixes for the MFI hearing aid issue. I have not had one burst of nasty static since upgrading to iOS 14.3 Beta 2. And for those not on the beta track, Apple also responded admirably quickly to this, and they've released iOS 14.2.1, and that has the MFI hearing aid fixes as well. So I'd be interested to know how that is working for you, whether it's cleared things up for you in the same way that it appears to have cleared things up for me. But we have had a number of emails about how this was affecting people. And I don't think I should just ignore those emails now that the software is out. So we will go through some of them so you can understand what a significant bug this was. Danny Keogh from Australia, he's writing in and he says, I can confirm that the problem is not exclusive to hearing aids. I bought a 12 Pro about a week ago and I've heard it a couple of times when the phone has been connected to my UE Mega Boom 3 speaker. Wow, I bet it sounds great on the UE Mega Boom. If you get that loud burst of static on that, it must be quite overpowering. He says the 12 Pro is running iOS 14.2. I don't use beta versions at all. I only have two Bluetooth devices I use with this phone, and both of them are for audio. I have the UE speaker and a set of AirPods Pro. I haven't heard this noise on the AirPods, but I've only used them a couple of times so far with the new phone. For me, this isn't a huge issue. It is slightly annoying, but as I don't use hearing aids, I'm not really affected by it anywhere near as much as you and others would be. Apart from that, I'm loving the phone. I updated from a 10s, and the speed increase is huge. Also, 5G is pretty impressive too. And yes, as far as I know, we do have real 5G here in Australia, at least with Telstra anyway. I can't speak for Optus or Vodafone, but I'd assume they have the real thing as well. I've ran speed tests on a three-bar signal, and I regularly see speeds of 500 megabits per second or higher. I haven't yet tested on a full-strength signal, as I don't get that from home. Thanks, Danny. My understanding is there are two levels of 5G. There's the MM Wave 5G, which is really directional and you have to be very close to cell signals and you can get over a gigabit per second on those. And then you have the other level of 5G. And actually, the US is the only country where the iPhones are supporting the MM Wave 5G. It's branded differently depending on the carrier that you have. But it's good to know that even with the sort of what I would call the standard 5G, which is built on the back of LTE sites, that you're getting that kind of throughput. That's really encouraging. And uh, if you do more on 5G, let us know the impact on battery life. That'd be good to hear too. 
Ken writes, I have the same problem with my Widex hearing aids. The noise is sometimes in the right ear and sometimes the left. The only way I can stop it is to reboot the hearing aids. Apple solved a huge problem in iOS 14. The hearing aids now release the connection back to the operating system quickly so I can adjust the hearing aid controls right away. Maybe the noise is an unintended consequence of the fix. Yes, I'll just interrupt Ken's email to say I have heard about this from other made-for-iPhone hearing aid wearers, and I've been so lucky because the Otacon Open S1s that I'm wearing never suffered this business of the connection holding on too long. That said, I have had the devil of a job being able to switch from my iPad to my iPhone and vice versa to the extent that I've stopped using my iPad altogether. So I really need to update the iPad and see whether it's any better now, whether if the phone's been idle for, say, 10 to 30 seconds, which I would expect, you can then just turn the iPad on with the hearing aids having been paired and have the hearing aids work. That's my understanding of what's supposed to happen, and it's never happened for me. So if you have an iPad and made for iPhone hearing aids and you are now getting smooth handover between the two devices, I would love to hear about that whether it used not to happen and is now suddenly happening for you, or whether you've always been able to do this, you lucky person, you. Now, Ken's email continues. Interestingly, he says, I had the problem on my iPhone X, and I still have it on my iPhone Pro. And actually, I can confirm this. Using the 11 Pro Max in fairly recent builds of iOS, I heard this occasionally as well. Usually, when I had started my hearing aids for the first time. So it's not absolutely exclusive to the 12 range, but it seems to be happening a lot more in the iPhone 12 range for me than it was with the iPhone 11 Pro Max. It was occasional with recent builds. Ken says, do you know of shortcuts to turn on and off the MFI left and right streaming functions? If not, what would be the best way to lobby for them Turning off Bluetooth altogether wouldn't work for me. What I've done, Ken, is create a shortcut that toggles Bluetooth off and back on again. Although I must say that doesn't seem to solve as many problems as it used to. I'm not aware of any shortcut that allows you to toggle the streaming of the hearing aid. Although you can, of course, put things in control center to make it a little bit easier. If you've got all that static, though, and you're depending on voiceover, I understand the dilemma. One thing you might want to look into, though, is that it is possible that Widex and some other hearing aid manufacturers have included a way to toggle the MFI mode on and off on the hearing aid itself. I actually found out that mine does this by accident. I have the Otacon Open S1 behind the ear version, the BTE version, and the reason why I have that one with the traditional molds rather than the new, more trendy option is that it's the only one in the range that supports the direct audio input where you can couple a cable to your hearing aids and then plug directly into the 3.5 headphone jack. And indeed, I've taken to doing that again for a while now. I use this to plug into my mixer to do the show and various other things. But back in the olden days, before I had MFI hearing aids, I used to run a direct audio input cable from my hearing aids to a 3.5 headphone jack. And when that went away tut tut laterally to an adapter that plugged into the lightning port so for now i'm back doing that until apple fixes this issue so that i don't get blasted with static at random times making me jump out of my skin but anyway i found out 
that by holding down the button on the hearing aids for a very long time, I mean, it could be 10, 11 seconds, I think, you know, around about that time, it's probably 10 seconds, you actually toggle the Bluetooth mode, the MFI mode on and off on these aids. And as I say, I found this purely by accident, just holding it down for a long time one day, and it made this tone I've never heard before. And I thought, what? What has it just done? And in a process of discovery, I found that what it had done was turn off the Bluetooth mode, which is actually quite a nice quick way of turning it off if I say want to play something for Bonnie on the iPhone speakers. It's actually a lot quicker than going into control center and changing the destination from there. So that might be something to look at or talk to Widex about. Ken goes on to say, I just found your show a month ago and have become a huge fan, a fan with some questions. Oh, here we go. I'll set the meter running. (laughs) He says, you referred briefly to a router you are now using that has helped your Wi-Fi greatly. Would you tell me its name and model number? We're talking about, Ken, a range of products from Ubiquiti. They are the manufacturer, and they offer several product ranges. Unify is their more high-end, professional-grade networking gear. And that's what we sprung for here in Mosin Towers, because we have Cat6 cabling right throughout the house. So we have network outlets all over the place for these things to plug into. So we bought a Unify Dream Machine. There you go. That's the specific name of the device. And depending on how much space you have to fill, just buying a Unify Dream Machine might be enough. The Wi-Fi is really powerful. These things are rock solid. I can't speak highly enough of the Ubiquiti Unify gear. So check out the Unify Dream Machine. If you need other access points around your house, you can buy a range of Unify access points And the product that you buy there will depend on whether you're going to hardwire your access point or whether you want to use Unify's mesh system, which is essentially a way of amplifying the Wi-Fi signal. So if you need more than just one device, need more than the Unify Dream Machine, I would consult somebody who knows what they're talking about in terms of Ubiquiti network gear to help you get the system that you need. Once it's set up, you really do just set it and forget it. I mean, I can go for a couple of months or more without touching the stuff now that it's set up how I want it. By the way, you spell Unify, U-N-I-F-I, and similarly, Ubiquity is U-B-I-Q-I-T-I. The other range that might interest you is called Amplify, spelt the similar way like Wi-Fi, but Amplify. This is their consumer-grade stuff but it's still very top quality stuff. And what you do is you set up a base station and then you can set up Amplify units around your home using wireless mesh technology. Normally you would buy these in two packs or three packs, but you can buy as many as you want and use wireless mesh technology to do the work. There are similar products. And actually I hear quite good things about Eero, which we can't get here in New Zealand. But the networking gurus swear by ubiquity, and I can understand why. Now, going back to Ken's email, he says, when you switched from the Mac back to the PC, how did you move all your iTunes files, music library, etc.? I just copied them into Dropbox and then copied them out of Dropbox again onto the new machine. Simple as that. Just copy the appropriate folder across and then restore it onto your PC. How do you use Ira with your hearing aids? 
Well, now that I have a Bluetooth made for iPhone hearing aids, when they're working properly, I just hold the phone out in front of me and Ira comes through my ears. So there's nothing particularly special about that. I believe, Ken says, you said something about donations to the podcast would be welcome. If so, where should they be sent and what payment modes do you take? PayPal, credit cards, etc. Would donations be tax deductible? I started this particular podcast, Mosin at Large, not too long after starting my new job, and I thought I'd really like to keep in touch with the blind community. Now, my new job is CEO of a national organization here in New Zealand. That's what I do during the week and sometimes quite a bit of the weekend. And so I have not asked for donations for Mosin at Large because I actually don't think it would be right. I'm very fortunate to be earning a good wage that might not continue forever. I have been on the bones of my backside before, uh, and I know what that's like. I never take these things for granted. I'm always really grateful. So there might come a time when, if Mosin at Large is to continue, I might need to ask for donations. But right now, other people need the money much more than me, and I'm just happy to try and make the contribution to the community for those who find it valuable. And for those who do, I'm really grateful for that. But thank you for the offer, Ken. I appreciate that a lot. Here's Marissa writing in again, and she says, I have upgraded to iOS 14.2 and iPadOS 14.2. I have noticed an issue with iMessage. When I send iMessages to contacts and they reply, I receive a pop-up at the bottom of the screen that says the person is not in your contacts list. It seems to happen most often when replying from the lock screen. I have not tested this with opening the Messages app. Are any users having issues similar? Any suggestions? I will say all settings for iMessage are correct. Phone, contact, etc. has not changed. Marissa, I have not seen this, but typically I always go into the Messages app and deal with my messages there. So based on the scenario you're describing, I may well not have seen it just because my usage is different from yours. So I don't know, but if anybody has any thoughts on this, if they're experiencing this, please let us know. Otherwise, you can always give the team at Apple a call and see if they have any thoughts on this. Hey, Jonathan, here's Peggy Kern again with a question for you and or other listeners. Uh, Something I've noticed anytime I've restored my phone from a backup, it happened when I was doing redoing the iOS 13 uh, to try to fix my watch issue. And then it happened with this new phone when I was getting everything onto it. And that is that one of my email accounts, everything that I've ever deleted comes flooding back into the inbox. And uh, with the iOS 13, I had to go back in and delete them all again, like 500 messages And uh, now they're all back with the iOS 14.2 and the restore from the iCloud backup. Um, And I was telling Dan about it, and he says he has the same thing. He just has one email account, and it does the same thing for him on his phone. Every morning, he has to re-delete the messages. Um, And I'm wondering if you or anybody would have any ideas of any settings that we might need to change to keep everything from 
popping back into our inboxes that we've already dealt with. Peggy, you don't say, but I'm assuming this is Gmail. And I think this has to do with whether you have set things to archive or delete. And I also think that in your case, which is happening just when you do restores from backup, if you restored from an encrypted iTunes backup, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't get this because the backup from iCloud does not save your emails. It downloads them from the server again, whereas the backup from iTunes will. I use an encrypted iTunes backup because it really is the best way to backup still after all these years. But that said, I don't use Gmail at all because I've had too many horrible experiences with so much being detected as spam that is not, and it's just a little bit overzealous for me. So I don't use Gmail myself, but I do remember reading somewhere that this could relate to archiving versus deleting. But there will be various factors at play here in terms of how you've configured your Gmail. Hopefully you were using IMAP and not POP3, which is very old technology, which has lots of flaws, including things that will manifest itself in the behavior you're describing. But I presume you're using IMAP. If you are, what should be happening is that when you delete an email message, it should be going into the IMAP trash folder based on what I've read, and then it shouldn't be appearing again. But there are many questions, Peaky, many questions based on how have you configured this? Are you archiving or deleting? Things of that nature. So it's hard to know. And I did a quick Google and couldn't find anything obvious there either. So it might be something that you can talk to Apple support about. I know you've had a lot of contact with them. And also, <laughs> I would be interested to know whether your change of phone has cleared up the serious issues that you were having with your Apple Watch. I've had some horrible battery issues. You've had issues of a different kind, which has erased a lot of activity data over some years. Hey, Jonathan. It's Doug. I thought I'd come out here and say hi and hope you're well. I'm using an app called Just Press Record. I'm using my iPhone 12 with this. And the mic is in stereo, which... I was quite surprised when a friend of mine demonstrated this ad. In fact, Herbie Allen did did a demonstration for me with his phone, or with his uh, 12 Pro at the time. Thanks, Doug. Yep, this is a new feature in iOS 14, so this one is not specific to the new iPhone 12s. New APIs in place, which let audio app developers determine what kind of mic options they will offer, including a range of stereo recording options. Fairite also has this. Just Press Record jumped on the bandwagon early. And for those who haven't heard of Just Press Record, it is a cool app. It's available for the watch and for the phone. And what I really like about having it on the watch is that you can have a Just Press Record complication right on your watch face. And if you need to, you can just double tap the Just Press Record complication and start recording. That is incredibly useful. I have actually used it when Uber drivers are trying to refuse Bonnie's dog or when I've been in a store and got into a bit of a discussion with somebody who doesn't know consumer law. It is just so handy to have it on the watch, double tap, and away you go. And you've got a record of it, and it stores it by itself automatically in iCloud. Even if you're a Windows user, that means that you can go into iCloud Drive and the file is right there. You can have it as a WAV file or an M4A file and take the file. It really is a great little app and it also does some transcription, 
which depending on the degree to which Apple's dictation service understands you may or may not be helpful. The developer cares a lot about accessibility, so that's called Just Press Record. Hello, Jonathan. This is Gary O'Donoghue in Washington, D.C. Apologies, you probably hear sirens in the background as usual or my dishwasher going. Just a couple of things I wanted to mention. On the U.S. elections, it's been an incredible... Well, it's been an incredible four years, to be honest, but it's been an incredible last week or two, just getting my first day off in a long while after covering all that. Um, and the thing I was going to say about your discussion about democracy in America, I think the one of the principal arguments against the majority of people electing the president as opposed to the electoral college is that the one of the things the founders were very uh, conscious of was the sort of tyranny of the majority uh, and that's one reason that the electoral college uh, came into being and it's sort of in american dna this idea that the majority can push the minority around and that comes from the the origins of the country in terms of big and small states so just by way of i think by way of explanation rather than justification i think that's one of the reasons people resist that the popular vote as a means of electing the president here on technology things i've got myself an iphone 12 pro i took the plunge having stuck with my 8 plus for a long long time uh, I'm glad I did. I'm still much getting much getting used to the the gestures for going home and stuff like that. And like you, I was a bit bemused uh, until I discovered the the SIM card tray was on the left hand side, a bit lower down than normal. Uh, but we found that uh, problems, voiceover problems, a little bit, some freezing um, of voiceover or voiceover going silent in unpredictable ways, uh, and. I am finding a little bit of unreliability with a couple of key gestures. The magic tap for me is not always working. And I mean, in the sense of starting and stopping playing media, in terms of answering a call, and in terms of, you know, when you're in an edit field to um, start dictating. That is a little bit difficult to predict. It seems, and this is just a guess, to be slightly connected with where you tap on the screen. It seems to be more reliable in the middle than towards the edges. But I just wondered if anyone else had come across this. And also, I'm getting a little bit of unpredictability with the three-finger double tap in terms of turning speech on and off. As I say, I don't know whether that's something to do with the new glass that they're using or anything like that. Uh, but I just wondered if anyone else had uh, experienced that kind of thing. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Sandra Peltz is writing in from Germany. She says, hi, Jonathan. Thank you for your informative show. I do enjoy the mix of tech news, general topics from a blindness perspective, and the reviews and interviews you have added to the show in recent months. I couldn't believe to see you released three shows within just a week. So thanks for all the work you were putting into this. Having heard you mention Microsoft Soundscape again, I'm just writing this quick note to share an email I have received from a Microsoft employee when I asked about the availability, or rather non-availability, of Soundscape in Germany. Thank you for taking the time to get in touch. We've recently released in France and Sweden, with Soundscape being available in the local language for each so the work has certainly started to be able to make Soundscape available in more countries. 
With regards to releasing the app in Germany, we haven't got a time frame for when Soundscape might be available. Unfortunately, as surprising as it may seem, apps such as Soundscape may require regulatory clearance prior to release in certain regions, and this process takes time. Be assured we are doing what we can, although I know that doesn't help in the short term. Sandra continues, I have noticed that for some countries where it is available, there are videos where the app is presented by Microsoft together with a local blindness organization. So I'm wondering if Microsoft does get more active trying to obtain regulatory clearance once the community shows interest in the app. I have written to one of our blindness organizations expressing interest in the app, but I'm not sure if they are finding it worthwhile to get in touch with Microsoft to signal interest. Anyway, keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Sandra. Really appreciate that. I mean, if Microsoft is waiting for blindness agencies to come forward, why can't they just be transparent and say this? I've tried to reach out to Microsoft on social media and say, oi, you know, in the nicest possible way, oi, you got Soundscape in Australia. Why don't you have it in New Zealand? And they won't give me a straightforward answer. There is no regulatory obstacle in New Zealand to them releasing it. So perhaps you're right, perhaps it's a partnership with a blindness agency. But if they require that, why don't they just say, look, if you want Soundscape available in your country, get a blindness agency to get involved. And then we'd know what to do. Hello, Jonathan, it's Grace here. I'd like to tell you about a new microwave that we have got now. We got it from our NIB and it has three buttons and it's got a dial for the volume and the top button is the minute button then down below that is the seconds button and then down below that is the power button and it sounds like this low defrost medium medium high medium low so that's the power button press start to begin or press and hold start for three seconds to cancel So that's that. Now, when you open the door, it it says door open, and it says something else. Door open. Where? Hot contents. Door closed. It says door open, and I'm sure it said beware of hot content. So that's a good thing. So I really like this microwave. But anyway, you were on about the first tape recorder that um, you wanted to know about the first tape recorder that we ever got well the first one that I got was uh, for Christmas one year, I can't remember what year it was but uh, I remember it was a real to real tape recorder and it was an Alba and I really liked it but I don't know what happened to it I've still got uh, I think it's a Grundig real to real but I don't think it works anymore (laughs) Uh, and that is a four-track one, I think. Yeah, I think it's four-track or two-track. I can't remember. It's that long ago since I used it. Thanks, Grace. We used to have a cobalt talking microwave, which I think originated from the UK, and I liked it. I do miss it. We've got a pretty cool microwave now that's not talking, but it does have a steam oven feature, which is really nice for steamed vegetables, really good on the low-carb journey. But the old cobalt talking microwave used to say door open and door closed, 
which I thought was a bit patronizing because, I mean, when the door's open, you know the door's open. You've just opened the door, right? <laughs> so that seemed to me to be really quite ridiculous. If that microwave you've got is talking about beware of hot food, that's even more patronizing. I mean, if you're opening the door and you've got stuff in there that's just been microwaved, I think that blind people are intelligent enough to know this, to know that it's hot in there without being told every time you open the door by a voice. It reminds me of how you go to a restaurant and you order, I don't know, like a skillet. You know, I ordered this the other day, actually. I was at a restaurant with my boy, my lovely son, one of them anyway, for lunch. And you order these sizzling skillets. It's amazing. And they bring it over and, oh, it sounds so good. And it's sizzling and they plonk it on the table in front of you. And you can hear that it's sizzling. So you carefully reach for your cutlery without touching the thing. Inevitably. If you order something like that, what are they going to say? Careful, it's hot. Well, duh, I think we know this. It's just another example of how people sometimes think, because you can't see, you somehow can't figure out really basic things either. Oh, my word, it is time once again for the exceptional bunny bulletin with the exceptional bunny mosin. How's it going? Good. How's everybody doing? Oh, everybody's doing well. Yes. You've now got your own mantis. I do. Which means that you can stop coveting my mantis. Well, I've never gotten It's one of the commandments, you know, about thou shalt not covet thy husband's mantis. I haven't even spent a lot of time with your mantis, so it wasn't really... I'm not going to let you. Now, you have a strong history with tape recorders as well. Like I think every blind person on the planet does. You think? I think so. Mm -hmm. It seems like it. What was your first tape recorder? My fir- The first tape recorder that I remember was a reel-to-reel we had. And I don't even know, I don't even remember what we did with that. I remember the tape recorder. I don't think I was allowed to touch it. I could still see at that point. <laughs> but I remember my sister interviewing me when I was about four or five. And I remember that interview because I was saying all this crazy stuff like I was 21 and <laughs> I went to Oak Grove School because I thought that was a really cool name for a school. And she goes, you can't go there because they have rats or something. I don't know. They eat rats in their lunchroom or some crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was just – she probably was like 12 because I think she was still at – so I might have been three or four. I mean, but anyway. Because yeah, she's nine years older than yeah, you. Yeah. So yeah. that was our interview that we did because she went to Hawthorne School. <laughs> and then I got a tape recorder for Christmas. I think it was a GE. We tend to have a lot of GE products. I think it did have a battery in it. I, th- I think at first I said it didn't have a battery in it, but I think it did. But you could also plug it in. It, it was one that you could hold on your wrist. It had like a wristlet. So it was about the size of a transistor. And I remember the pause button. You couldn't hold. You could hold it down, but it wouldn't stay down. So you had to hang on to the pause button. That's a weird concept. It was a weird so concept. I don't know why. It was now like that, that you mention it, I think I do remember that. So that pause buttons that you you just held them down, and then as soon as you let up, it unpaused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which is really strange. And then I got other tape recorders that were. I always liked the ones that kind of laid flat on the table, mm-hmm. and you had little handles on them that you could carry them by. I always those oh, were my yeah. favorite. Yeah, the little handles on the carrying handles. Yeah, yeah. On the front. and yeah. they looked to me they looked real professional. I don't. 
I don't know. I think I probably saw one in a movie or something, but those are my other ones. And then of course I graduated up to the APH recorder. I did have two of the handy cassettes. Someone was talking about those earlier, the APH, which were great, but I found they didn't hold up that great. The two I had didn't hold up really well. I really liked the ones that you could play the NLS books with. And I think it was, it was before they were bookshare. Um, R and D sold one. Does anyone remember that one? It was a, it, I don't. I think it had, did it have a radio on it? I can't remember. Mm. There were some that had radios, AM, FM radio. They were Walkmans, but they recorded and they also played NLS tapes, which was cool. cool. I still have one of those. Yeah. They, they did repurpose some mainstream devices, didn't mm-hmm. they? Sony. Sony yeah. was a big yeah. one. Yeah. And I remember there was a thing called a Bit Talkman. Do you remember that? That's what, that's what I, that, yeah, that's what I had. Oh, I that's think. what you had? That's what I think. Yeah. Okay. That's what I had. The Bit Talkman. Yeah, there was a Panasonic. There was, I think it was Panasonic. For that, huh? It's surprising they didn't get pinged for kind of ripping off the Walkman. Yeah, I remember my first Walkman, but it didn't record. Then I got some that did record. But um, yeah, Tanya was talking about slowing down sounds and speeding Mm. them up. Oh, I did that. We Mm. we would make weird noises into the tape recorder and pretend to be monsters. And my friend Amy, who probably won't appreciate me talking about this, but who cares? You know, it was a lot of fun. We did a lot. I wanted to be a journalist since I was probably knew what one was. And so I did a lot of news reporting with my tape recorder. And sometimes it would be real things. And sometimes it would be parodies of real things. We covered a horse race, a make, you know, a pretend horse race. We did a space shuttle launch, a couple of space shuttle launches. You know, they weren't the real shuttle launches, but we had the the footage of the shuttle launch to play it, and we pretended to interview the astronauts and, mm. and stuff like that and different <laughs> people at the – and I was always the the – like the Tom Brokaw main reporter in the studio, and Amy was like the roving reporter and did a lot of the other voices. We did a newscast one time where we had God, I shouldn't even talk about this, but we had Howard Rochelle or Howard Cosell, sorry on it. Howard Cosell was on there talking about baseball. You know, she was doing his voice because she could do a lot of different voices. And um, yeah, so oh man, some of those recordings would be so incriminating. We had Billy Graham, to yeah, and we talked to Billy Graham. Could play them on the Mosin at oh, large. We, thankfully, they've been—they're not around. So how do you know? Because my mother threw them out <laughs> when she was cleaning out the house when I was an adult, which makes me angry sometimes. That's but your history, there. I know. Yeah, I remember recording family Thanksgiving one time, and I remember taking recording Niagara Falls. That would have been cool. Was that in stereo then? Probably not. Oh, no. That would have been really cool to get a, especially like a binaural recording. No, it wasn't. It was my little cheapy, my little first tape player, tape recorder. So it probably wasn't the. Um, but it's 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 true though. It's kind of like our camera, isn't it? Well, Amy, my friend Amy's dad, I mean, she's had a tape recorder as long as I can remember. And she'd bring it to camp and different things. And it was a really nice top of the line tape recorder. It was in like a leatherette case or it may have been leather. I don't remember. But her dad, who was a huge photographer, got it because he said, that's your camera. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah, that, it is true. I have a friend who sadly is uh, is, is dead now. But he used to take his tape recorder everywhere. And at the time, we thought it was a little bit obsessive and a bit kind of, as as the Americans like to say, weirded us out a bit because he was recording everything. But then about 10 years after Amanda and I were married, 
he popped up and he said, I've got a recording of your stag night. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. So he gave me this recording of oh, of, no. our, of the stag night. It was quite extraordinary. Um, <laughs> you have to be careful of some things that you, you know, maybe not need to record. But, yeah, I mean, not only would he record things, but he'd keep them, you know, yeah. and sort of archive them in a methodical way. Yeah, uh, I knew one person that recorded their first flight. Oh, yeah. Which is a bit kind of random, but, you know, that's what they wanted to do. So they took it and they were wanting to share it with someone that a blind person had never flown before. So they were recording all the, you know, announcements and Uh, whatever. Yeah. I I actually, when I got my Ederil R1 and we were starting to podcast a lot of these recordings, blind people went crazy during that period as well, recording all sorts of things. The big buzzword then was the sound seeing tour. Oh, I remember those. And I remember recording highlights of a flight from, I think it was Dallas to London. <laughs> Jeez. And I, what I did was I was able to actually take a cable from the line in of the Ederil R1 into the headphone jack in the seat. So I was able to get a really good recording of the flight announcements and everything because it was direct. And, uh, so, so in many ways, yeah. as a lot of things seem to happen with blind people, we were way ahead of our time. Because, I tell you. Because now yeah. everything is social media. So people yeah. have their phone out recording everything on earth. So blind people who are recording flights to London and whatever else, you know, we set the standard before everyone else started dragging out their iPhones and, and, and Androids and, and yeah. photographing and videoing That's every right. single thing. And in many speeches I've given over the years, I've made this point about a lot of things. I mean, we had keynotes and Braylon speaks in the 80s. We were carrying around effectively PDA-type devices yep. long before everybody else. The, the 33 and a third RPM record was developed for talking books. The original Kurzweil reading machine has metamorphosized into scanners that people have in their offices and OCR. I mean, the blind community has made a huge contribution to technology in general. And this is why it is such an obnoxious argument when people talk about, quote, ghetto products in the blind community. We have donated so much to the wider tech space. So you cited people, if it weren't for us, you would not be Instagram, you know, stars and, and all that. Crazy stuff. Yes, th- we're thankful for blind peeps. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Any other final comments on features you're enjoying about your Mantis now that you have one? You also got the executive products I leather did, case before which me. Are so, it reminds me of my old Pac-Mate kind of. Only it does feel like a Pac-Mate when it's in there, Pac-Mate, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really enjoy – there's a couple things. It's great being able to have it around your neck and write notes if you need to. Mm-hmm. And I also enjoy being able to – Download books off Bookshare and read them just sitting up in bed, which, yes, I know you can do with your phone and the focus and all that good stuff. But and and that's wonderful. But it's just nice not to have it attached to another device. Right. Yeah, so. I've I've long since given up on trying to understand that logic. But I, I you're not the only one who feels that way. No, I'm by not. By a long way. Yeah, so fair enough. So that should be a boost to the Mantis's popularity. What, that you like it? No, that people can do that. Oh, oh. a lot of people, that's what they want. I mean, I talk to people, I want a, just a simple note-taking device that I don't have to pair with my phone all the time. Right, so and you've got what you wanted now. I got what now. I wanted, so yep. yeah. yeah. There you go. They made it just for you. No, yeah. I don't think so. 
To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.